Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So I thought we'd start with a poem tonight. We both thought that we'd start with a poem. <laughs> we actually had the thought at the same time. <laughs> this is called Nerve Endings, Remainders, Jagged White, and it is by Sylvia Legris. Nerve Endings, Remainders, Jagged White. Neuro fault line, nerve quake hemicranial. Wind rips into you, a tree split mid-trunk. Blast of sheet metal lightning, two plates of a skull pried apart. You are frayed optics, mind a double edge. The curve of your sight mimics the night as it surrounds you. Dark domed, thick tongue drift into sleep. You liken this to the embrace of the planetarium. Ten years old, every spark igniting sky or mind, each kern or turn of exotic syllable held a minute point of departure, a bright speck far away. Far off into the future. Here the moon is cut in half. No, the whole universe is a thought ruptured just short of completion. So thank you to Aaron, who helps me choose the perfect one. It's many, many perfect poems. So a small group of us have been meeting for a few weeks and talking about the Leva Sutra through the lens of a, uh, another book, which is about Dogen and his experience of time and space. Um, so Michael asked Karina and... Grant to um, go over Chapter 16 together after Christine and Mike did Chapter 15 two weeks ago. So we sat together a lot and looked at chapter 16 and talked about it and wrote about it and thought that we would share some of what we came up with this evening together. together. <laughs> oh. It was funny. We laughed harder than you guys all <laughs> We sat in the park rehearsing that. Apparently it had to be there. <laughs> so... Um, so because Mike and Christine did chapter 15, and that was two weeks ago, and it's been two weeks, and we've probably forgotten, um, I'll just recap a little bit what chapter 15 was. And the Lotus Sutra in general, if you haven't been here, we've been talking about this text that um, is about the presentation of this sutra that is yet to really happen. It's been this culminating experience that is yet to climax. And so we're here. We're in this context of this assembly gathering to hear the Lotus Sutra in the book. Um, and the place is Vulture Peak, which is um, 
which is um, an actual place where the Buddha practiced when on retreat a lot, where um, the Lotus Sutra is being taught, and the first council was held after the Buddha's death, too. So, um, so the context of chapter 15 is Vulture Peak, and, and I think it's useful to know that this, this even though this text is very um, imaginary and um, can seemingly be outside of the real world, this, this is all happening in the Saha world, which is the world of samsara, the world of suffering, where the Buddha awakened, and this is also the world that he taught in. So that's the context. And the gathering is now of a multitude of bodhisattvas and mahasattvas. Maitreya is there, who is just announced to be the Buddha's next heir after his extinction. And, and the Buddha's there. And those in attendance ask the Buddha, when um, you pass into extinction, is it possible that we can recite the Lotus Sutra and protect the Lotus Sutra and offer alms to the Lotus Sutra. And, um, and he says, that's ridiculous. There's no need. <laughs> because there's an innumerable number of bodhisattvas in the world or the potential space for bodhisattvas to arise in, in the world, in the Saha world. And just as he said, says this, the, the world splits open and, um, and an endless number of bodhisattvas spring out from the Empty, war, the realm of empty space underneath the Saha world, um, and they arise in, in, on Vulture Peak. And, and then Maitreya and company are just stunned and cannot understand this at all. And, and, they, um, and so Maitreya perceives this wonder about how this is possible that all these disciples or students of, of the Buddha existed, um, or how he's even taught all these, these bodhisattvas in the short 40 years that he lived from his awakening to his death. And um, so Maitreya asked the Buddha, how is this possible? It is as if, it is as if a 25-year-old man were to see a 100-year-old man and say, hey, you're my son. Or a 100-year-old man would see a 25-year-old son and, or boy and, and say, oh, you must be my father. So Maitreya um, is stunned and he asked the Buddha, how is this Possible, fade to black, and scene, cliffhanger. <laughs> That's where we were left two weeks ago. <laughs> you probably slept very little since then. <laughs> so chapter 16, I'll just go over really briefly, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about it a little bit more. Bit of a spoiler alert. I don't know if you find it unsettling when someone's talking about the book or the movie, and they say, oh yeah, he dies at the end. <laughs> um, not this time. What the Buddha ends up saying is that... <laughs> Um, no, you got it wrong. I only seem to go into extinction. And it's part of this discussion about skillful means, about expedient means for teaching. That when, when he stays too long, his students become a little bit complacent and they fail to put down good roots. And so he employs a number of different techniques, which he goes through, um, that, that cause or inspire this thirst in the students so they don't stop their practice and they actually really um, practice heartily. Uh, so he has a discussion about this, and then he finishes the chapter, it's quite a short chapter, uh, with a parable about skillful means relating to a physician, and we'll go over that in more detail. Okay. Oh, and first we have to put time on the altar, because this chapter is about time. Okay. So we're here on Vulture Peak in chapter 16. And I'll read from the text. So those in attendance have just asked how this is possible, um, that there are so many bodhisattvas that you've taught in this short time of your life. 
I don't, I don't get it. And then they also say, but whatever you tell us, we'll believe you. That's how chapter 16 starts. They say it three times, of course. Whatever you say, we'll believe that your words are true. And so the Buddha starts to describe. In all of the worlds, the heavenly and human beings and asuras all believe that the present Shakyamuni Buddha, after leaving the palace of the Shakyas, seated himself in the place of practice not far from the city of Gaya and there attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, or Great Awakening. But good men, it has been immeasurable, boundless hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of nayutas of kalpas since I in fact attained Buddhahood. And now he starts to talk about what, that, that time span, starts to describe that time span. Suppose a person were to take 500, 1,000, 10,000, a million nayuta, uh, samkhya, 1,000 million-fold worlds, and grind them to dust. Then, moving eastward, each time he passes 500, 1,000, 10,000, a million nayutas, a sam, a nayuta, a samkhya worlds, he drops a particle of dust. So these are like these worlds that he grinds to dust, and then drops that into a whole other world. He continues eastward in, to Leslieville or something in this way <laughs> until he finishes dropping all the particles. Good men and women, what is your opinion? Can the total number of all these worlds be imagined or calculated? And so Bodhi, or Maitreya and like company are like totally stunned. And they can't, they can't understand this. There are voice hearers and Pratyeka Buddhas who are, they're called non-backsliders. They don't slip back and forth between great awakening and delusion. They're in it. They're like, 100% Great Awakening, and they still can't fathom this amount of time or all these worlds. So they, so, I mean, they're just like blank faced, so the Buddha continues. Good women and men, now I will state this to you clearly, in case that wasn't clear enough. Suppose all these worlds, whether they received a particle of dust or not, are once more reduced to dust. <coughs> Let one particle re represent one kalpa. The time that has passed since I attained Buddhahood, surpasses this by a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million nayuta asamkhya kalpas. Ever since then, I've been constantly in this saha world, this world of suffering, preaching the law, the dharma, teaching and converting. And elsewhere, I have led and benefited living beings in hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of nayutas of us and asamkhya lands. Um, so that's hard to that's hard to like it's hard for me to wrap my brain around. <laughs> I read that and I, I feel a bit stunned. Um, and the poem we began with leaves me feeling a bit stunned. I feel they share a quality of awe inspiringness, if that's a word, or disabling of the sense making capacity that sometimes we have. Just to imagine that these are um, I mean, this whole world, imagine this whole world, and not only this world that we see in this Saha world, but the empty space underneath the Saha world full of bodhisattvas, potential bodhisattvas that rise up in chapter 15. So both what we see here and the negative space below what we see here, all together being a whole world full of potential beings of awakening, this whole world ground to dust, and then being dropped to Leslieville and all of those worlds being ground into dust and then ground into dust and all those spaces between all of those worlds also being ground into dust and then using this to count time. And to me that's like the part that really gets me is how these, these worlds of space that are both empty, negative and positive space of manifested or material things and beings um, all together are used to count time.
and not only just um, time, but but this the Buddha's lifetime. Um, and um, I think this is beyond the cerebral capacity to to make sense of this. And um, it re- it reminds me of a time when I was a time, <laughs> a whole world, when I was one day walking through Trinity Bellwoods Park. It was pretty early in the morning, and um, and I was suddenly stopped, just stopped by a sense of a sense of there being invisible strings filling the space around my skin that were potential beginnings to a potential narrative that could be followed um, from that place that I was standing in, and that each of those each of those threads were all in a sense equal and yet all entirely different and um, I found this stunning at the time, and um, and I, I'm just reminded of that when I read this introduction and and imagine the um, this conflating space and time and and the feeling and imagining the feeling of that the sensation of of being in that conflation of space and time and these potential narratives that are just that are um, in every direction in every three dimensional direction. Um, and so this, this introduction to this chapter is almost a reflection on chapter 15 and the boundless space of chapter 15. And now we're also moving into the incalculable time of the Buddha um, and, and, and studying that. So um, I'll read. Um, so Stephen Batchelor writes about the path of practice or awakening as um, unobstructed space. And this is a commentary on one of Stephen's writings. So Bachelor sees it as a place without hindrance, something that is unobstructed. Space is that which has nothing in it, an absence of resistance. A path is likewise a space that offers no resistance, allowing one to walk upon it, offering freedom to move. Mara, on the other hand, is that which obstructs, which blocks movement. So Mara is our, our, our habits, our, our inner demons that can haunt us. Um, it is our compulsion, our endless thoughts, our feelings of separateness that block our movement and prevent us from living in true freedom, that which hinder, hinders our path. And so um, what we learned in Chapter 15, and this is really kind of a recap in a sense, like Michael and Chris, or Mike and Christine talked about this so beautifully two weeks ago, about this, this space in this way. And, um, and I think it's just interesting to imagine how... how um, how the bodhisattvas in chapter 15 that are still in attendance in this, in chapter 16, are um, are beings, are potential beings of awakening. They are maybe coming from empty space, manifesting in positive space, and um, and that also they are not just beings. They can also be um, a mood or a feeling or a rejection or menstrual cramps or cancer, like all of these ways that bodhisattvas can, can arrive for us. Um, and, and so if we go into, deep into each of these worlds that are ground to dust, um, and to see that each of them is full of, is full of um, potential beings of awakening is, is quite remarkable. And so there's that, that bit on space wrapped inside this commentary at the beginning of chapter 16, and then also we have this investigation of time and the inconceivableness of this time this counted time. And then um, also, if we go into 
into each of these worlds deeply, like we can go into each of the worlds and see space, we can go into each of these worlds and see that time is maybe not even passing if we really go deeply into all of these different moments. It's kind of like looking at a film strip and zooming into one frame and to wonder that there's a whole world there and also is time passing in that world. Um, and so, I mean, even in that, in that example, like we end up talking, what I think is so interesting and what kept coming up for me in our group discussions was how much um, talking about boundless space and incalculable time end up at the same, for me at least, maybe someone else has a different sense of this and you can enlighten me to it, but when I, when I really go into these ideas, I, I'm like left in the same sensation in my body. I can't tell the difference between imagining, imagining um, endless space and endless time. So homework or something. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, so, and, and also another thing I reflect on in my, in, in my own life is, is how I maybe have these habit patterns of ways of, that, of moving through my, my life. I, I came up with this, with this idea for an art project, and because I'll probably never do it, I'll just put it out there, which was, um, if you need more, there's more. <laughs> um, was taking um, um, a large um, piece of plastic and drawing out um, um, a map of where how I move through the city in a day and then like every day doing this and like seeing how the map would go you know over time like how much it's similar and where it starts to be different or something like if I imagine the map of the life of how I usually move about my day like it's pretty predictable there's a few ways I can go off like Grace Street or Shaw or something you know like when I'm biking to the subway but it's you know pretty steady and, um, and these are the habit patterns that are also, like, I'm still moving through my life, but maybe, I'm, maybe there's another potential narrative, mer- narrative in there somewhere. Um, and another thing I think of is uh, Twilight Tharp is an American choreographer and dancer, and she wrote a book on working with creativity and exercises to get you into creative thinking, and there was this one that really stood out to me that was um, putting yourself into an, an egg position where you compact yourself into the tiniest physical ball that you can, as if there's no, people are smiling, I think you must smile. as if there's no space in your body, like you're just as small, this would be the aponic pose in yoga, <laughs> you're as small as you can possibly get, and actually the primary series is, I think, like this, where you get smaller and smaller, and then you get bigger again, but, um, so her exercises where you actually get yourself into the tiniest ball you can, and you stay there until there is a spontaneous, organic arising of movement that pulls you in a direction that happens on its own, so you don't come out of it of, by your own volition, it just happens. Um, and she recommends that you do this before you sit down to do anything creative or engage anything creative. And I think it's just really interesting how um, how how this is also the path of non-obstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we studied this book in our group, um, our group. I mean, you're all welcome, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, we have a secret handshake, but we'll teach it to you. <laughs> um, so we studied this book that talks about Dogen, and I was just really astonished to learn how much Dogen was inspired by the Lotus Sutra in so many of his writings. Really, really inspired in so many of his, uh, many of his writings. And especially chapter 16, um, and the inconceivable lifespan of the Buddha was a symbol for him of how, um, how non-duality can manifest through practice, through wholehearted practice in the present moment. 
um, and he used this to emphasize practice in um, in in a few ways. I'll talk about I'll talk about more soon. But um, so so this wholeheartedness of practice that can open us to to um, experiences of of non-separateness. Um, and, and that's intimacy that we talk about so much here, non-separation. And um, Peter, Peter Levitt was a translator of Dogen's work, and um, Grant and I listened to a talk of his um, about what it was like for him to translate some of Dogen's work. And um, he, talks about, he talks about being drenched in, in, um, in this, way of, this way of intimacy as, as being drenched. And I, I love this word because... Um, it's supposed to rain tonight, so maybe we can all practice this together. <laughs> but um, I imagine just running outside in a thunder shower, and um, and then coming in afterwards, and you're like, "Oh, I'm soaked! I'm so I'm thoroughly, thoroughly soaked!" And um, and just at that moment, like you don't think, "Oh, there's water on my clothes," <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I'm I'm not tasting this food. There's just sensation. This is just pure taste. And um, there's just pure being drenched, um, and this happens through sen- through our sense doors, through our through our sense faculties. Grant will talk more about this. Um, so this is proximity. This is really no separation, and um, cool. <laughs> so if this is true, then like why do why why do we need to practice? Why are we here even? And um, chapter 16 continues because of this problem. Um, so the Buddha goes on in chapter 16 to describe how he, um, just checking the time, time is passing, <laughs> stay on track. Um, so the Buddha goes on to um, describe how he will, um, he meets someone and senses, oh, this is Rose, this is like what you, this is your level, like intuiting someone else's place so that I might say, oh, this is my I'm, I'm about to. I'm about to enter extinction. I've had this lifetime. I'm about. This is the language of the Buddha in this chapter, right? I'm about to enter extinction, or this. This was my life. I'll tell you the story of my life. And I. I was this person, and I suffered a lot. So then I went into the woods and practiced, and I. And I got to know suffering, and. Um, and learned how to release suffering, and how to cultivate a sense of release, and to create this path and, and path of practice. This four noble truths. This happened in a human life, and this might be inspiring for you. If I intuit, that's what you need. And this is a Buddha and a Buddha, right? So, um, so the Buddha writes about about his life story as even being an expedient means. So that's the remarkable thing. This whole book so far, the Lotus Sutra, has been about largely about um, various expedient means that are used to awaken um, sentient beings by by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and um, so beings of awakening, or good friends, <laughs> good food, <laughs> the rain, um, and and so I mean this is really skillful, right? Like if we were just to say, hey Grant, like boundless space and calculable time, like don't you get it? <laughs> you know, like sometimes you need to hear a poem, <laughs> or um, you know have amazing food and um, so some of us need different ways of hearing things we need different motivations even to wake up or, or even maybe to be shaken to wake up um, and turn the page 
Oh, but I love how he describes. So the, this is how the Buddha describes people who need to hear about the historical life story. So this is a key part of chapter 16, right? That, that um, the historical life story of the Buddha is an expedient means. So saying that he was someone that he was someone who went into the woods and practiced and then taught a lot of people and then died is actually useful, a useful tool. And so these are the people that need to hear the useful tool. Um, so some beings, the, the beings who need this are the beings that prefer little structure. They are meager in virtue and heavy with defilement. <laughs> so, um, so these people need something really inspiring. <laughs> something to work towards that is maybe also human and possible. And, um, and that also recognizes that, that it begins with suffering. Because most of us are here because we're still suffering. So this life story is actually instructive because it begins with suffering. And there's also, there's also finitude to it. There's impermanence to the life story of the Buddha which is really beautiful. And I think this is really part of, part of the expedient means of sharing this story. So the goal of this is actually, and this language is in this chapter, that the Buddha does this to create a longing, to create a thirst for the Dharma, a thirst to wake up in, in sentient beings. And, um, and it's interesting to also consider how the Bodhisattva path is a path of striving is a working towards and not yet having reached anything. So if the Buddha is this quality of awakenness and the Bodhisattva is a path of waking up and waking up, it's also not finished. And because it's unfinished, um, it's, it's motivated by striving. And the Bodhisattva vows that we sometimes, during the precepts course, we chanted these every time we got together, um, vowing to um, save all beings, vowing to extinguish all suffering, all desire, vowing to um, attain the Buddha way and 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 um, to achieve the Dharma is like all these things are totally impossible, and yet this is the fuel for the Bodhisattvas. Um, and these Bodhisattvas are also in Vulture Peak. So the context of the beginning of this chapter was um, how the Bodhisattvas are there, Maitreya is there, the Buddha is there, and and then not I mean that wasn't enough. So like the earth cracks open. And a whole other multitude of bodhisattvas springs forth and joins the assembly. And so all these characters are suddenly on Vulture Peak. And then, and then the Buddha is saying, yeah, and people of meager, you know, meager virtue and um, that are heavy with defilement, they need to know that I'm going to be extinct. And then, um, like, wait a minute. Like, didn't we just hear that, that Maitreya is going to be the next Buddha heir? And doesn't that mean that the Buddha's death is imminent? and is about to enter extinction. So suddenly, I mean, this happens a lot where the Lotus Sutra is very self-reflexive, like talks about something and then does that very thing. And in one sentence saying, um, only people who are of meager virtue really need this. And then in the next sentence saying, hey, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> even to bodhisattvas, even to bodhisattvas that are in attendance and all these heavenly beings that are in attendance are hearing this. Um, I think this is pretty cool. <laughs> um, so even to the non-backsliders, they use this. So, um, so imagine like it, it's as if like I would sit here and say to Grant, "Hey Grant, like I was born on the weekend. I made this powdered drink that um, it tastes great, but um, you know it's really it's the cure for people with 
bad body odor and who are a little bit dim-witted. <laughs> you know, um, you look thirsty. <laughs> like, would you do this to your friends? <laughs> but maybe, maybe if they need it, maybe if they're, they look thirsty. <laughs> So maybe all of us need some, some vigor powder from time to time. We need, um, we need something to bring us out of the delusion and, and to, to help us to awaken. Um, and so we have this teaching of the life story that fundamentally really is about impermanence, and that is so beautiful. Um, and we all have this, um, this, this fear of, of death, surely, at some point in our lives at least, um, and in the story of chapter 16, the Buddha is saying that if he were to just remain on the earth for forever, um, people would get lazy in their practice. Grant mentioned this as complacency. We would get dull in our practice. And, um, and having a sense of, of, um, of imminent death is, can be a skillful means, too, to helping us um, feel inspired. Um, Stephen Batchelor was here in the weekend. He talked about um, a workshop or a gathering he went to before coming here where the discussion was about um, Buddhism in the West. Now that teachers, elder teachers of, um, of, of Buddhist institutions in the West are getting older and starting to die. And now these, these gatherings and discussions in the Buddhist community are starting to happen where, where the conversation is about, well, what if, what if Buddhism's going to die in the West? What if um, these older leaders are going to pass away and then these teachings are lost and, um, and I think that's so interesting and helpful and, and Stephen kept saying that it's just it's really important to remember that that, that's, that has happened so often in the past things have died out, communities have died out, communities like this one have died out and, um, and, and knowing that it's not permanent is helpful um, Dogen, and this may be now you can start to get a sense of how this chapter was so inspiring for Dogen to urge practice, to really urge urgent practice. And he wrote an essay about this called The Fundamental Point, which we studied, some of us, last year in the intensive. And um, this appears in the Shobogenzo collection of, of essays. And um, this, this essay discusses the ultimate dimension of non-duality, of no separation, and also asks, what is the fundamental point? And we talked about this for weeks in the intensive, and I think it was like the very last day we finally got to the fundamental point, which turns out to be um, the necessity of practice, despite the realization of the ultimate dimension, despite the realization of non-duality of no separ- and no separation, um, we need to practice. We urgently need to practice because we forget, because we're backsliders. You know? And even if we weren't backsliders, apparently we still need, to <laughs> we still need these teachings. Um, and we need to feel, we need to feel this. Um, and why? And still, like, we can, and we can still maybe wonder, well, okay, but then we're going to forget again. And like, why? Even beyond, even beyond that, why? And, I think of a book that I read as a teenager. This might be a bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, a book that I read by Robert Heinlein in 1973 called um, Time Enough for Love. Oh, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> <laughs> 
so in this book, there's this character, Lazarus Long, and he's immortal. And he lives through, through many, many lifetimes and has multiple relationships that are like, mm, you know, kind of meager and, and, and travels through many, it's a science fiction, right? So it travels through many galaxies and, um, and then halfway through the book, in, in a chapter called Happy Valley, he enters upon this, this world that is mortal and falls in love with a woman who, who's going to die. She's mortal and he's not. And um, it's this beautiful pause right in the middle of this book where um, he has this really meaningful relationship with that, that um, is transient and because she then dies. But their, their love is so rich and they appreciate each other so much. Um, and so I think, I think of this, this, um, this emotional piece that happens when, when maybe we have a sense of, of, um, of connecting with the world deeply. And then especially that in relation to really feeling our own impermanence deeply um, in our bones, in our bone marrow, Stephen said, feeling this so deeply. Um, Dogen, Dogen loved um, the Lotus Sutra. Dogen loved the Buddha. He loved the historical Buddha so much. And there's, there's um, a piece that I'll quote from, from the Dan Layton book that we all studied together. That um, uh, this, is, this is from a Nirvana Day discourse that Dogen said on one of the Nirvana Days. So the Nirvana Days is like the birthday for the death day of the, of the Buddha. So celebrating the day that he passed into Nirvana, the extinction, death. And so it goes. This night, Buddha entered Nirvana underneath the twin Sala trees. And yet it is said that he always abides on Vulture Peak. When can we meet our compassionate father? Alone and poor, we vainly remain in this world. Amid love and yearning, what can this confused son do? I wish to stop these red tears and join in wholesome action. I just love this passage so much. To imagine um, Dogen, who had such great awakening, wrote such beautiful things, and who cried on, Buddha's, on the Buddha's death day even though he understood that, that there are always on vulture peak like, peak, like he shed tears. So these are interesting experiences to oscillate between awakening and striving towards something. Um, I think in our practice, we can have these elements in our own minds, even when we can have awareness and suddenly there's awareness of the story making capacity of the mind and that is also a buddha and suddenly it's a buddha and seeing a buddha in our own minds and it's and it's the buddha of awareness seeing the bodhisattva that's that's working towards something seeing each other and 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 maybe catching also this place where we've drifted off where we've been unconnected and um and I wonder about that place a little bit, just even when we meditate and notice that we've drifted. I wonder what, what's there, maybe. Um, and I just started to think about this more with reading this chapter and, I, and about this emotional piece that happens. And I wonder what, if there's an emotion even there that, that happens when we realize we've been lost. Like, are we sad that we've been missing out on being more connected, that we've been lost in storytelling? I don't know. I think it's interesting to think about. Um, I mean, Dogen would also go off and, 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 and he does write about how delusion is also this place of, 
of great awakening and um, and that we can awaken by understanding the conditions and causes of delusion. So not to say that one is priority or better than the other, but, but I'm just curious about this place where the quality of awakening of awareness that is the quality of Buddha can maybe even see the quality of the bodhisattva, of the working towards um, in our own practice. And so we chant here at the end of every night um, about death, ultimately. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. Um, and this is, this is the fuel for all of our practices and, and helps us to come back, to come back to the breath, to the body, to the saha body, the, the body of suffering, the body that is boundless space and incalculable time inside, inside the, the feeling body. Stephen Batchelor says, Since death alone is certain and the time of death is uncertain, what should I do? What do we do when there are these potential narratives everywhere, when we're surrounded by infinite space? And so I wonder what impermanence can feel like in a practice in the body, I wonder also what um, the feeling of no time passing can feel like. I'm left with those two questions at the end of this chapter. Um, and how do we hold? How do we hold these? How do we practice holding, holding both of these things? And I think that's what Dogen um, feels urges or requires practice is the difficulty in holding both of those things, and even the difficulty in, in coming back to. Um, coming back to um, having a larger sense of our lives. So I'll, I'll wrap up my little uh, bit with a short poem. Time is passing. Um, very short poem. I'll read it quickly because it's not so short. Um, it was like this, you were happy. It was like this, you were happy, then you were sad, then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent or you were guilty, actions were taken or not. At times you spoke, at other times you were silent. Mostly, it seems, you were silent. What could you say? Now it is almost over. Like a lover, your life bends down and kisses your life. It does this not in forgiveness. Between you, there is nothing to forgive. But with the simple nod of a baker, at the moment he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is now a thing only for others. It doesn't matter what they will make of you. It will be wrong. Or your days, they will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman, miss the wrong man. All the stories they will tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this. You were happy, then you were sad. You slept, you awakened. Sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, sometimes persimmons. It's by Jane Hirschfeld. Round two. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about the parable that, that comes at the end of this chapter. Um, <clears throat> and frankly, it doesn't start well. There's a poisoning. Somebody's children have taken poison. Luckily, their father is a physician. And when he comes back from the journey, uh, he sees that they're in great suffering. And they beg him to help them. Uh, to relieve their suffering. And so he sets about preparing medicine for them. 
and he uses the finest ingredients and prepares a concoction that is of excellent quality in color, fragrance, and taste. And he gives this to his children, and they, the people that aren't so sick are able to appreciate, they're able to perceive the, the, the color, the taste, and the fragrance. And they take the, po- uh, not the poison, they take the medicine, and then they're cured. Their suffering is relieved. But the other children are described as having lost their senses, and they can't perceive the color that is good, they can't perceive the taste, they can't perceive the smell, and they refuse to take it. And these are the kids that are called, or, or that are described as having lost their senses. And I think it's really worth pausing for a moment to consider what does that mean to lose your senses? And if we think about in the Buddhist uh, teachings, there are six senses there's eye, ear, nose, tongue, skin, and mind. Mind is actually a sense organ in the Buddhist thinking. So if we lose the senses, we are completely cut off from the world. And really, he's talking about the kids who who can't just um, drink the potion and then all of their suffering is gone. So I think we could probably safely consider that we're all in the category of the kids that have lost their senses. I mean, assuming that all of us have some suffering and can't seem to figure out how to get out of it. Um, And I think what is being implied in this text is that at the end of the day, this is a crisis of imagination, that we be cut off from the outside world because the act of perception is an imaginative process. And if we take sight as an example, technically what sight is, is a bunch of photons coming, crashing into our neurons and creating all of this massive information that the brain and the mind has to sort out using the imagination to become form, to become meaning. And what happens is that the imagination becomes routinized. And so we start to perceive things in terms of things that we already know, in terms of things that we already think, concepts that we have. And then um, eventually we're seeing we're seeing just what we want to see rather than what's actually out there. And so what happens is the physician in dealing with his children has to creatively engage with the situation that has arised. He's got the perfect medicine for his kids, but they refuse to take it. And so with a slight flair for the dramatic, he tells the kids that he needs to leave and then he leads them to believe that he's died. When they get this news, they are overcome with grief and sorrow that their father has died. And this shock to their system sort of interrupts their patterns enough that they can see that um, were their father with them, he would be doing everything he could to help relieve their suffering. And this sort of insight allows them to revisit the medicine, at which time they can actually perceive the color They can smell the fragrance, and they can taste the... um, Smells great, tastes even better. Then they drink it, and then they're cured of their their suffering. And so, um, in terms of... I just want to go back for a second to this this cutting off of the senses, 
to just reinforce it one more time. There was a movie several years ago called What the Bleep? Do we know? I don't know if anyone saw it here. But in the movie, one of the scientific studies that they were reviewing was um, a study using magnetic resonance imaging machines, MRIs, to, to trace brain activity uh, using certain conditions. So they would have someone in the MRI machine, and they would play the sound of a dog barking, and then they would check out how the brain was responding to this. And so during the sound of the dog barking, it wasn't the center of brain concerned with auditory response that was being activated. It was the center of the brain concerned with memory. And so if we consider that, we're not actually hearing the dog that's barking. The brain, the imagination goes back into the archive and picks out sound of dog barking. Who knows what dog? Who knows when it was? But the fact is, we're not interfacing with the world. And so if we think of the, um, the implications of that, to say the least, it's unsettling. And it's kind of a window into what the Buddha is suggesting, or the text of the Buddha is suggesting in this incidence, that if it's possible to hear a noise that we, that's a dog barking, but it's not, then the same is true for all of our senses. And we can be so rigidly tied in to our own patterns patterns of preference, patterns of reactivity, that we're not actually engaging the world as it is. And so even while you know, we're all conscious of the fact that everyone's sitting on a cushion and hopefully listening at the same time and maybe smelling things too, that they could be so much patterned by our past experience and our own agendas of the way we think or want things to be that we're actually cut off from our present experience. And so the skillful means of the Buddha in his teaching is actually to become an artist. He sees the student as they are with whatever they're working with and has to meet them where they are. And so that his teaching becomes particularly geared to that student at that moment in time in those conditions. And in fact, the skillful means of the Buddha also asks of us all to be artists with our own lives, to wake up to what is actually happening, and then to use those ingredients. Imagine a chef having the ingredients and using just what's on the shelf, you know, without reaching for the Thai spices that aren't there, without pushing away the parsley or the parsnip, just cooking what's there and being able to fully taste that. And far from becoming a passive response to life, it actually allows us to move forwards and create change in our lives based on situations as they are, rather than a sort of culture of reactivity that isn't connected to what's going on and is just based in our own theories and concepts. Um, Some of the other ways that the Buddha talks about this in the chapter, he says, I am always here, but through my transcendental powers, I make it so that living beings in their befuddlement do not see me even when close by. So he's saying, I'm not what you think I am. I'm not your idea of me. And he, he says, the scriptures are all for the purpose of saving and emancipating living beings. Sometimes I speak of myself, sometimes of others. Sometimes I present myself, sometimes others. And sometimes I show my own actions, and sometimes those of others. And really what he's saying there is that he is presenting himself as the Buddha, 
as the historical figure of the Buddha, but also as the Buddha, which is the capacity to wake up, the capacity of awakening. But he's also the other two. He's the full gamut of the three jewels, of the three refuges. So he's the Buddha, he is the Sangha, and he is the Dharma. He is the Dharma as he um, is presented through the scriptures. But we can also take uh, the definition of Dharma as phenomenon and see that the Buddha is also presented as the natural world, as a kind of uh, natural law of how everything works together in this interconnection and that, that nothing can be torn out of its background, that we're knitted into this fabric of the universe, ourselves included. And then he's the Sangha as well. Uh, I think we could think of that as this community of practitioners when he says, you know, I sometimes present my own actions, I sometimes present others' actions, sometimes myself, sometimes others. So we're this practice group that is together, but also all beings form this community in which um, the Dharma is appearing. And so the skillful means uh, of the Buddha is working through each of us all the time. And Dogen has a really great um, quote about this from the, from the realizing the fundamental point. And he says, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, that's you and me. Oh, thank you. Oh, there could have been timing for that when I finished. They could anyway, save the thought. We'll imagine the lights come shining on. Actually, maybe I can cue you, Lana. Um, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they don't necessarily notice that they are Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. <laughs> oh my God. So it's like when we're totally in our lives, we make space for everyone else to be in their lives as well. So it's not this sense that we have to know, like, I feel my Buddha coming on. And it's like, oh yeah. There it is. No, it's like it flows through us. Buddhahood is like a current that moves through us and moves through the natural world. And, and so whether we're aware of it or not, we're actually facilitating the practice of others. And in terms of the Dharma, um, Dogen's great because he always seems to take things one step further. And so here's another one that kind of talks about practice in the natural world. He says, grasses and trees... Fences and walls demonstrate and exalt this awakening for the sake of living beings. And in turn, living beings, both ordinary and sage, express and unfold it for the sake of grasses and trees, fences and walls. So we're breaking down this, this sort of separation on, on so many levels of where practice starts and where it ends and who's practicing and who knows they're practicing even. And then the fact that, yeah, we need to practice and we also need to know we're practicing sometimes, that they all interrelate to each other. And so, as the Sangha, both ordinary and sage, um, we see this capacity in ourselves to be Buddhas and to wake up to our own lives and also wake up in our relationships with other people. And so, where this ends is that simply practicing is a compassionate practice. That our practice creates the conditions in, you know, you can think about it in a number of different ways from these quotes, but it facilitates the conditions for enlightenment or waking up in the world and of the world. 
Um, and again, Dogen takes it one step further, saying that displaying the Buddha mudra, or the seated position that we sit in, with one's whole body and mind, then everything in the entire Dharma world becomes Buddha mudra, and all spaces in the universe completely become enlightenment. And on that note, the other thing that this chapter and a lot of this text kind of gets at is the the relationship between the Buddha and the Bodhisattva. And and Karina was talking about this, and I'm going to talk about it in a slightly different way, um, in that the relationship is a relationship of time and space. That in the Buddha consciousness, when there is this radical perception of the interpermeation of all things, where separation disappears and the, the entire of the background becomes one with us and you and everything, um, all concept, conventional concept of time disappears. Because the ego function of the mind, which is that function that spins the story of a me doing whatever or having things done to it, ceases. And when there is, that needs time to unspool for the story to unfold. And so in this space, when everything is convergent, time disappears. Without time, there is no space, which could be a whole other lecture on its own. But the point being, when there is no time, there's no karma. Karma, the translation of karma is action, and action can only be completed in time. And so the bodhisattva can only exist in time because the bodhisattva's commitment is to as the, the four vows that Karina was talking about. And so the bodhisattva is the expression of the Buddha in the world and vice versa. And, and the vice versa is, is, comes out in the Dogen quote that I just read, that when we sit in meditation, we enlighten the world. That, that just being the Buddha is the expression of the bodhisattva in, in this sort of uh, interpenetration of everything. And so the Buddha's whole life practice of this huge, long life that he undertakes as a bodhisattva is a practice of compassion, And it's the practice of him committing to mixing medicines for all beings of all different flavors, all different colors, all different um, scents, so that he is making this commitment before he finishes. And he talks about his lifespan. And it's, you know, it's this ridiculously long, unfathomable period of time. And he says it's less than one third over. So even if they made the movie into a trilogy, he's not going to be dead at the end. It's still, there's going to be another sequel. Um, yeah, so in the end, you know, when we think of this, this Buddha and Bodhisattva, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the Buddha idea as the ultimate, the ultimate dimension, and the Bodhisattva realm as the historical dimension, where there is linear time and there is an understanding that, that there is separation. There's a me, there's a you, and, and we're not all jammed together. And so our practice is, can we stay in between those points? Can we not cling too much to one idea or the other? You know, if we're totally in the, in the historical run, that's when we get stuck in our own viewpoint. Which dulls or even 
cuts us off from our senses. So I just want to finish by reading just part of, of what the Buddha says later on. He says, For Asankhya Kalpas, that's uncountless glacial ages, constantly I have dwelled on Holy Eagle Peak and in various other places. So when living beings witness the end of a kalpa and all is consumed in a great fire, this, my land, remains safe and tranquil, constantly filled with heavenly and human beings. And I think it's worth pointing out that the end of a kalpa is not judgment day. It's not like the end of a glacial age. It's when things change. It's when disappointment comes up. You know, when the job doesn't work out, when the relationship goes sour. Or maybe it's just the end of an exhalation. It's where our habits and our patterns brush up against impermanence enough that everything seems to catch on fire. And he goes on to say, in this land which is constantly filled with heavenly and human beings, Mandarava blossoms rain down, scattering over the Buddha in the great assembly. My pure land is not destroyed, yet the multitude see it as consumed in fire with anxiety, fear, and other sufferings filling it everywhere. Which is going back to the poison of the, of the, um, the parable, that it's, it's the poison in our own veins which is stopping up our senses. And so that even though we're on Holy Eagle Peak right now, that this is Holy Eagle Peak, we can't see it because we can only see through this burning veil of our own suffering. And so it's not like we didn't get the invitation to Holy Eagle Peak. We just like, can't hear it. I, can't, I mean, there's great big stupa floating above us. It's so noisy in here, it's hard to hear yourself think, you know? Um, and so he finishes off this quotation. Um, These living beings with their various offenses, through causes arising from their evil actions, spend Asankhya Kalpas without hearing the name of the three treasures. But those who practice meritorious ways, who are gentle, peaceful, honest, and upright, all of them will see me here in person, preaching the law. And so here again, we're coming back again to this senselessness and, and cleared senses. And so, you know, we can think of him in person preaching the law, which is dharma, law is dharma, as him giving the the historical Buddha giving the teachings, presenting the teachings to people who are listening. Or we can think of the, the law as the way or the path, or even the phenomena of the natural world. That the Buddha, as the capacity to awaken, is constantly providing us with this manifestation of the interconnectedness of everything. And if we could, if we could open up to that experience um, with our hearts and our minds, then we could see that. And maybe the burning would stop a little bit. So if every exhale is the end of a kalpa, then we either get trapped in this parched viewpoint of me and mine, which believes that the change is happening to me. And in that case, that's when we burst into flames. Or the other end is to try and polish our senses to see that at the same time, as we are having difficulty, it's not like difficulty goes away, but at the same time, um, we were never separate from changingness, and that there is no fixed self to whom this change is happening. So it's not like the Buddha realm discounts all of personal experience, which is sometimes joyous 
and sometimes not joyous, but it's that um, it is still within the flux of the natural world. It doesn't get torn out of the background just because we either really like it or we don't. So I think we've, it's 8.59. <laughs> Uh, yeah, did you want to? Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Um, oh, I, have, I do have a few things. Sorry. But nothing else about the sutra. But, um, um, so um, there's a done box at the back. If you came to yoga, please donate. The suggested donation for yoga is $20. Um, and meditation, likewise. Um, there are a few books on the back counter. And most recently, um, Michael's newest book, Awake in the World, which just came out, is uh, for sale at the back. Uh, you can put money in the box. Also, there's a, a book, um, a hand-bound book by...